This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. The theory of abiotic oil states that oil arises from inorganic processes that occur deep within the core or lower mantle uh, of the earth and uh, rather rather uh, rather 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 than uh, from the slow transformation of animal and plant matter into hydrocarbons so inorganic oil or a sorry abiotic oil imagine the ramifications there's no such thing as peak oil We're not running out of oil. Oil wells are replenishing themselves. Now, of course, this idea perhaps is kind of scary to those who subscribe to man-made global warming. Uh, In fact, it's very bad news because if the oil is replenishing, it's renewable, which means it's not going away anytime soon. Uh, that's one of the uh, the topics that we'll take up with science writer and uh, one of the founders of Principia Scientific International, Joseph A. Olson. He returns to the program to discuss abiotic oil and also, uh, well, he's here for the uh, entire show. We've got much to discuss over the next two hours. We should have plenty of time to get into uh, other things besides abiotic oil. Uh, including some perplexing questions having to do with the Saturn V rockets used in the Apollo space program and the the lunar lander. Something doesn't quite add up. And uh, these uh, problems, let's say, just add further credence to the whole idea that the lunar landings were perhaps a hoax. Uh, We'll also get around to discussing 5G and some of the latest data on potential health risks associated with 5G. Around the bottom of the second hour, the bottom of the second hour, we'll open up the phone lines and take your questions and comments uh, again. So just sit tight, enjoy the conversation, take notes perhaps, and then in about 90 minutes, I'll open up the phone lines. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Ryan White is our live stream producer. And yes, we're live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Hello to all of you who've assembled in the live chat. 
Don't forget to hit that red sub button if you're new to the uh, to the uh, YouTube channel. And um, if you're uh, new, please join the live uh, stream chat, and I welcome your questions and comments as well. I may even read your questions and comments on the air. Joseph A. Olson is a retired engineer. He's written over 100 major civil engineering and climate-related articles. He's a founding member of Principia Scientific International and one of several co-authors of the book Slaying the Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory. Joseph Olson, welcome back to the program. How are you? Oh, God, it's delightful to talk to you again. Uh, we're going to answer the questions that Siri and Alexa cannot answer for you tonight, so stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, they're uh, uh, just... Let, let me just start off, though, with... I gave a, um, a, a very unscientific explanation of abiotic oil. So if I could just get your your definition of it. Well, it's not, I'm, I'm guessing you're going to cite the official sort of version or the official uh, definition. What is it? Uh, abiotic oil. Okay. Well, the, there's two competing hypotheses, and one of them is close to being a theory. One of them is that the only petroleum on the planet comes from dead dinosaurs and you know ferns and organic matter that was interred in in the crustal formations and it's decomposing and that's what's providing oil and that means oil that is finite and that we're going to run out in a real short period of time and that was a, a hypothesis peak oil hypothesis was put forward by M King Hubbard in the early 50s and that's a complete joke. They they embraced that idea because the bankers wanted to take us off of the gold and silver, which had been the traditional forms of currency, and put it on something that was a, a decreasing supply so they'd have an automatic inflation factor. So what happens is that the production of gold and silver roughly matched the the increase in number of human beings. So you had a stable currency that everybody could agree had value. It has a lot of uh, value from a manufacturing and, and industrial standpoint for both of those materials, but also it's got numismatic value. And it's, you know, because it's rare, it's something that we could agree on as a, a trade of labor for um, minerals. As a matter of fact, boy, I should pull up the most expensive mineral on the planet. I sh- I'll, we'll, I'll do that while we're talking, and then we'll uh, we'll mention that later. So uh, the idea here, Joseph, is you have to create a sense of scarcity for something to have value. Correct. And then it has to be something that, that you have a, a, a value for anyway. So you could melt copper pennies and make a, a copper pot. You could melt nickels and get the nickel out and, and use it to plate things. And so they had intrinsic value regardless of, of what they were actually made of. You know, so it's not like paper where it doesn't have a whole lot of value. You can, uh, you can use it to, you know, take care of bodily functions, but that doesn't mean that it's a good value beyond that. You know, other than just you agree that it's worth something. So the bankers embraced the idea of um, peak oil because it gave them an automatic 
inflation base for what they wanted to switch the money supply over to in the 70s when they took us off the gold standard and they made all of the uh, oil transactions to be done in U.S. dollars. Okay, so so, so that's the that's the uh, the the version of um, inorganic or sorry organic oil coming from hydrocarbons coming from fossilized plants and animals. But what about abiotic oil? What is what is the mechanism then by by which abiotic oil would be produced deep within the Earth's core? Okay. The hypothesis that the Russians came up with in the 1950s was that it was from elemental atoms. And when you have fission of a large atom, it releases a million times the amount of energy of the highest chemical reactions known, which would be a TNT reaction. And that amount of energy also produces a bunch of daughter atoms. And if you look up like uranium and wiki, it will say that there's 13 uh, daughter atoms. But some of those are unstable, so they're going to go ahead and produce another group of daughter atoms. But under high heat and pressure, you could have an even wider range of daughter atoms. So the example that I like to use is if you have a rack of cue balls, you've got seven even-numbered cue balls, and you've got eight odd-numbered billiard balls, and then you've got the cue ball. Okay, well, let's just say that the evens are protons and the odds are neutrons. Okay, so you have an atom that's that's a collection of 7 and 8. That would make it like a a nitrogen atom would be very similar to that. Okay, now if the cue ball slides over and just barely touches the rack and sticks to it, then you've created an isotope by adding another neutron. If it comes over and knocks off a oddball, then and then the cue ball leaves, then you've created another isotope, but that has a fewer number of neutrons. So basically, if you knock off a proton, then you've created an isotope that's a whole different family. For instance, in the atmosphere, you have nitrogen, which has an atomic number of seven. It has atomic weight of 14. It has seven protons and seven neutrons in its most stable form. If it's hit by a cosmic ray from the sun, it can knock one of the protons out of that nitrogen atom, and it changes from nitrogen-14 to carbon-14 because it, the carbon has six protons. And it has, is radioactive, has a half-life of 5,300 degrees, uh, 15, uh, five, yeah. 5, this is getting, sorry, years. Joseph, to, to interrupt. This is like beyond my, my pay grade. <laughs> my, okay, all right, um, all right. Well, we'll skip, we'll so skip let's really simplify stuff. it. So just give me okay. an overall okay. idea of how right. the abiotic oil is formed in the earth. Okay, the Russians, when they drilled their oil wells, they noticed that they had water coming out of the oil wells. Well, oil floats on water, so the water would have been heavier than than the oil, and water is at least twice, solids are at least twice the density of oil, of water. So that means that if you've got water underground, it would not be able to be there 
by being pulled down by gravity, that the only way you get water underground is that you have a nuclear reaction where the uranium, as it's decomposing, is producing hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon atoms in addition to the other daughter atoms that it can produce. And under high heat and pressure, those hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon atoms are going to want to form a molecule because it, makes, it takes up less space. And so in the process of forming molecules, it would form like CH4, which would be methane, one carbon atom, and four hydrogen atoms. And that has a specific gravity of 0.43. It floats in air. If you, you fill a balloon with natural gas, and it'll float up in the air. The reason I call it natural gas is because it's natural and it's everywhere. Okay, so what you're saying is then that the mechanism uh, for the creation of oil underground is not decaying organic matter, plants and, and dinosaur bones. It is decaying uranium? Decaying uranium and, and thorium. And Earth has 259 billion cubic miles of mostly molten rock. And if you do the the wiki ratio of percent parts per billion of uranium, you end up with 700,000 cubic miles of uranium. For thorium, you end up with 1.2 million cubic miles. That's an enormous amount of feedstock under a giant nuclear reactor that's producing bubbles, and those bubbles want to form molecules, and so they end up forming. And then under high heat and pressure, you can form longer and longer chains of hydrocarbons. So in other words, it's not... Technically, you can't call it renewable because the, the amount of uranium is finite, but it is so vast, so common, that it might as well be considered uh, renewable. Is that fair to say? That's fair. Earth's, Earth's original atmosphere was ammonia and methane. Well, where'd that methane come from? The planet has been producing hydrocarbons for billions of years, and we've got at least a billion years supply of, of nuclear feedstock to continue that production. We might be currently consuming it at greater rate than what the planet is producing, but it's absolutely not finite, number one. Number two, if we're not harvesting and using this, this resource, then it ends up being a, a hazard. So I wrote my Oh, that's first interesting. Article. If we're not using it, it's going to come up through the the vents in the ocean and so forth and would would be hazardous to the environment and our health. We need to use the oil. Correct. It, it's, you know, it, whether you want to be biblical about it or not, it's like a gift from God that if we don't use it, then it ends up being uh, uh spoiling the the Eden that we were given. So anyhow, and, just how, how long does that process take? So uh, while as the uranium is decaying and these these the hydrogen and the carbon and the oxygen are forming uh, molecules, hydro, hydrocarbons, how, how long a process is that? Probably close to uh, instantaneous. It's just like what's going on in an oil refinery. You can take uh, a petroleum feedstock and you can bubble hydrogen through it and you can change it from a liquid to a, a grease to a plastic to paraffins to waxes. There's a whole series in, in the hydrocarbon chain that you can create in a factory just by adding additional carbon dioxide and additional 
uh, hydrogen to produce a longer chains, and that's the Fischer-Tropsch process of uh, making gas from coal uh, gas. So you you take coal and you and you convert it into methane gas, and then you add additional hydrogen and carbon dioxide, and you can turn it into gasoline and diesel fuel. And that's what the Nazis were doing during World War II when they had no access to additional supplies. Okay, so just to be clear, coal is uh, is a fossilized plant, correct? Correct. Yeah, it was. Okay. It was interred under 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 uh, changes due to the tectonic plate movements. The 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 certain soil layers were subducted, and then mm-hmm. they're underground. They are mats of thick um, organic matter, but they're being constantly um, converted into a larger change hydrocarbon and having a more burnable uh, product and a more energy dense product by the gasification of the of the gas that's coming through that was one of the principal reasons why the miners carried uh, canaries into the coal mine was because a very low concentration of methane gas would tell them that the canary died it's time to get out of the mine before the mine explodes ah okay uh, what about natural gas is that um, is that inorganic? Yes, yes, because it's it's the simplest uh, gas molecule, and it's it can be from an organic source. You can take uh, archaea, which is a, a different life form, single cell life form of, of bacteria, and you can put it in the gut of termites and uh, rudimentary animals, grazing animals, and actually in people, and they will produce methane as one of the byproducts. So you can produce it organically, and you can produce it from waste products. Our, our sewage treatment plants produce methane, and, and so, our landfills and, and, do. They have methane recovery systems for right. those. What about, and can some oil be organic? It picks up, as you're filtering through these layers, it picks up elements because it's a solvent. So you, you're producing a petroleum product, and then you're bubbling it through organic layers so that as it goes through those layers, yes, it is a solvent. It does absorb some of the uh, content, and that's why the petroleum products differ worldwide. You can take just a sample and and do a spectroanalysis on it and go oh my god this this oil came from Venezuela and this oil came from you know it's Brent crude or it's Texas West Texas sweet or it's Canadian tar sands you can tell the origin of the oil by the impurities that it picks up as it's being passed through those organic layers and it's filtering out different elements and and molecules along with it but all right so anyhow so- Getting back, we're, to we're coming up on a break here, Joseph. I just wanted to fit in one more question, and then we'll we'll yes, sir, resume yes, this conversation on the other side. And someone uh, with a rather interesting handle here. I'm going to my YouTube live chat. I wasn't going to take questions uh, until a little later, but this is a good one. And and that is, um, how do the 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 oil sands fit into this theory here in uh, in Western Canada? The oil sands uh, is that inorganic or organic oil? It's the the same oil. It's just that it's uh, you know what 
VOCs are uh, volatile organic compounds. Those are the ones that evaporate off the quickest. So those oil deposits were placed in those sands a long time ago, and then the sands have had a, a long period of time to outgas the lighter volatile things through the sand layer. And so if you'd have gone to that part of Canada a million years ago, you'd walk around going, gee, this place stinks, because the petroleum products would have just been bubbling out of the ground. With all of those volatiles left, gone, then what you end up with is is basically the asphalt, which is the heavier molecules from the but, petroleum. But, but is it inorganic or is it organic? It would be inorganic because all of it's coming from the same place. Ah, got it. All right. Um, now, if if this is true, abiotic oil is true, and my word, I hope so, and it makes sense what you're saying to me. It makes perfect sense. But uh, is there evidence, uh, uh, so for example, oil wells, uh, let's say in Texas, that were running dry, depleted, all of a sudden now they're filling up again? And that is correct. They're not filling up at the same rate that they were able to be drained but they are filling back up because the oil's coming from a far lower depth inside the mantle, and that's where it's being forced up from. Is there a, I, I, I don't want to call it a prosaic explanation, but those people that don't subscribe to abiotic oil, what would their explanation for those oil wells, once depleted, filling up again if the oil is in fact organic? They don't have an explanation because you can't just keep going deeper and deeper. You get to the point where there is molten rock, and you couldn't possibly have uh, petroleum in presence of molten rock. It'd be too hot for those compounds to to exist. So what's happening is you're producing the feedstock in that molten rock, and then as that feedstock comes up, it's the bubbled up CO2 and bubbled up hydrogen that are being created as fission byproducts. And those byproducts, as they rise up through this refinery, are combined together. And the more of whatever different elements you have, you'll end up with other chains. But basically, the simplest chain would be methane, which is CH4. All right. We're going to take a time out, Joseph. Stay put. We'll come back. Science writer, retired engineer, founding member of Principia Scientific International stays with us. More on abiotic oil. We'll get around to talking about the perplexing questions about the Saturn V rocket and the lunar lander, what that means for, um, you know, did we land on the moon? And uh, also, dangers of 5G. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Joseph A. Olson stays with us. And uh, we're talking about 
abiotic oil. Incidentally, uh, Joseph is one of the co-authors of Slaying the Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory. Uh, so this idea that, that the abiotic oil is coming up from deep within the earth, does that mean they have to drill down extra further to get it? Well, they keep finding it at deeper and deeper depths, so that's one further proof of what we got. But let me just uh, back up just a little bit, and I'll, I'll do my initial article on this. was posted at Canada Free Press in September of 2010. It was called Fossil Fuel is Nuclear Waste. And it had 11,000 crosslinks in one day. Canada Free Press has a language translation bar on the side of their um, articles. And I went to uh, Wiki, and I pulled up the, the title of my article in quotes, which means it's just that unique combination of words. And there was 11,000 crosslinks and 10 crosslinks per page. I went through the first 100 pages and wrote down... 25 foreign languages. So that's the power of the Internet. I wrote an article, and people went, this is really good information, went to the translation bar and put it on their Facebook pages worldwide in less than 24 hours. So that's pretty remarkable. But here's one of the um, little topics that I covered. Um, California has interesting place names from its multicultural cultural heritage. Pismo Beach is named after the Chimua Indian word for globs of tar due to the natural hydrocarbon outflow. The Spanish Portillo expedition in 1769 discovered a molten tar geyser in present-day La Brea tar pits in downtown Los Angeles. La Brea is the Spanish word for tar. It was it's down now to about 10 gallons per day production, but it was just a streaming tar that ran down Wilshire Boulevard and emptied out into Long Beach. In 1892, Ed Donnery, who was one of the principal culprits in the Teapot Dome scandal, drilled his first well north of Los Angeles. It was 200 feet deep. It shot 200 feet in the air, which doesn't match spindle top, but it gives you an idea of the amount of pressure that had been built up by that oil not being released and used, and uh, it was free-flowing. So 200 feet deep, shoots 200 feet in the air, free-flowing oil. Uh, after he did his, they littered the beach of Long Beach with oil wells, and they were able to completely reduce the oil and the consumption by the archaea bacteria ate up all of the oil that had been stockpiled on the beach, and now you have these pristine beaches in California where they don't want to be allowed to drill oil because they don't want to have oil spills coming up and tarnishing the beaches that a hundred years ago were almost paved asphalt streets. It's absolutely that's absurd. interesting. Oh my! So you're saying if there is an, uh, an whether the oil spill is natural, like a geyser spewing out this tar or whether it's an oil tanker spilling oil, it's, it's, it's not an ecological disaster as we've been led to believe. No, they've got biological. If you try to reduce it with chemical agents like they did with the uh, Global Horizon in the Gulf, 
you end up with a nightmare, an ecological nightmare. But you have archaea, which live off of hydrocarbons that can digest it. Really interesting thing, I wrote an article at Canada Free Press called Amazing New Ronco Proxy Croc, how you could cook your numbers with, um, with and it's a satire, but it's really funny how you could cook your numbers with this uh, magical crock pot. And one of the things is we had mentioned earlier about carbon-14. Well, if you do a fresh-killed seal or penguin in Antarctica, they carbon date to 2,500 to 3,000 years old. Well, how in the world can they be 3,000 years old? Most of the marine life has a carbon date of 400 years old. And you know that most marine life is not 400 years old. The Unless it's a Greenland shark. Yes, you're right. Yes, yes. Well, the difference is that the bottom part of the food chain are single-cell organisms. For most of the terrestrial stuff, that's bacteria, and the bacteria are going to take a large portion of their carbon intake from the carbon-14 that's in the atmosphere. So when plants do photosynthesis, they absorb a little bit of the carbon-14. They make sugars, starches, and cellulose by a similar process to refineries. They're just adding more and more hydrocarbon chains onto a molecule. So you start with a little sugar molecule, you make it into a starch molecule, and you make it into a cellulose molecule. When the animal digests it, they put acids in there and they reduce the cellulose down to starch that they can use, and then they use the starch and reduce it down to sugar and fats that you can run your whole body off of. So it's just basically an up-and-down chemical reaction, which chemical engineers love talking about because they, they love everything to be based on chemicals, but that's not the whole end of the story. So anyhow, you're, you're, um, you have these microorganisms that live off of seafloor vent food only in Antarctica that are able to digest this methane. And then those archaea become the base of the food chain for the krill, and the krill become the food uh, chain for all of the small fish and the whales. Absolutely <laughs> so fascinating. Means, Let me... Yeah, so, so that means you've got nothing but a C12 food chain instead of having the, the C14 factor. So that means that you can't use carbon dating everywhere on the planet because it's variable. Right, right. So if if... Oil. I love this idea that it is the product of nuclear waste. In other words, uranium, these endless seams of uranium decaying deep within the earth. If, it, if this uranium is so uh, omnipresent throughout the world, why do we find oil wells, oil uh, in, in only certain parts? So Saudi Arabia, Texas, parts of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Western Canada. Why isn't it ubiquitous? Well, because it comes up through fault lines. So until we understood the plate tectonics, we didn't understand that there were, and that's what the Russians had actually uh, uh, prophesized as well. So after I was doing, or well, actually when I was doing my show notes, we I did a similar program on this on March 18th on with uh, George Norrie on Coast to Coast. And doing my show notes for that, I came across a article that was also published at Canada Free Press, and that was published in uh, on July fourteenth, two thousand eight. And the author of that uh, 
was J.P. Morgan, who's an engineer, a forensic engineer in New Zealand. And his article is... I think, I think it was Peter Morgan. J.P. would be the banker. Peter, yeah. Okay, Peter J. Morgan. I'm sorry. Uh, anyhow, oil is not a fossil fuel, and AGW is non-science. I had difficulty finding this because uh, Google's gotten really bad about filtering anything that's going oh, yes. into all of the narratives. So I had found this article and sent it to you, and then I had a heck of a time. That They said the article doesn't exist until I actually got the full title correct in quotes and the author, and then they went, oh, yeah, here it is at Canada Free Press. He goes through <laughs> a complete history of of the, the Russian involvement, which includes um, the first Russian scientist was 1757, uh, Mihaly Lumonosov. You can tell I don't speak Russian very well. But then he gets to the uh, really most important one, which is Dmitry Medlevev, and he's the one that created the periodic table. And he said that oil was created at great depths and bubbled up through cracks in, in, the, in the rock. And that's exactly been proven in 1951 by Nikola um, Kurdronstvev. And I don't want to right. say that I pronounced that correctly, but anyhow, you can read his article. It does a really good job of explaining the early part of the history of the theory. Now, in America, there was a Cornell professor named Thomas Gold who was was from Hungary and was fluent in Russian and knew a lot of the Russian scientists, and he was an uh, astrono- astronomer, and he took their material... And he said, well, you know, I think the Russians might be onto something, but um, I'm going to go ahead and put my own little twist on it. So he wrote a, an article in 1992 called Deep Hot Biosphere. And in 1999, he turned it into a book, and he managed to convince people that oil came from bionic sources, that there were microorganisms that lived underneath the earth, and they were the ones that were eating up the rocks and making the the petroleum products. So they drilled two wells, and I think they were about 12,000 feet deep. They used extreme sterile measures to make sure that they could bring up biological samples from the depth, and both wells failed. So everybody said, well, gold has proven that it doesn't work. And this is kind of, you know, like the the straw man argument that they make in a lot of cases when they're trying to prove something. They'll find somebody to do a false experiment, and then they'll go, well, that, that proves that you can't use right. hydrochloroquine to, to cure uh, Chinese cooties. It's like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know? You okay, so in other words, gold that. was wrong. But the the critics, his version of abiotic oil is wrong. So the critics latch, they point to him and they say, see, he was wrong. Therefore, the theory of abiotic oil is wrong. Correct. Isn't that funny how that works? Oh, we've seen that played out time and time again. So um, what would happen? We're we're heading into a break here shortly. Let me ask the question and then we'll, uh, we'll get an answer from you on the other side. What would happen to the price of oil? I mean, it's, 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 um, what is it, around $60 a barrel right now or less? What would happen to the price of oil if it suddenly became understood and accepted that that oil was virtually um, renewable? 
I mean, I, I, maybe that's a rhetorical question. I guess we know the answer, but we'll get uh, we'll get some details on the other side. Jo- Joseph Olson, science writer, retired engineer, founding member of Principia Scientific International, back with more of the Conspiracy Show after this. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Oil and gas are nuclear waste, a byproduct of decaying uranium deep within the Earth's core. Abiotic oil. Joseph A. Olson is with us from Principia Scientific International. Uh, So if oil was virtually renewable and, and that word got out, what would that do to the price of oil? Well, you'd be surprised what the price of oil would be if we didn't have sanctions against Russia, Iran, and Venezuela. Right. So let's right. just put it that way. If, that, if, those, if those stockpiles were allowed to be on the market, the oil price would certainly collapse. Right. I mean, and there may, may or may not be good reasons for certain sanctions on certain countries, but... Um, a low price of oil isn't necessarily good. It's not necessarily yeah. good for a country that's based on a petrodollar either. Well, you know, they started building the Alaska pipeline, and they realized that six dollar a barrel oil could not be cost feasible with the Alaska pipeline. So we had the first oil embargo in '72, and then they started drilling in the North Sea, and they realized that. Uh, $16 barrel oil wasn't going to be profitable in the North Sea, so we had the 1978 oil, and that drove the price up to $30 a barrel. So if you don't think that there's not people that are manipulating the market based on their supplies, then you just aren't aren't looking at the whole big picture. So, so the, the, the name of the game for the oil companies is not to... It's not exploration. It's to keep the oil in the ground, not to extract it. Well, because there's a lot less profit for them if all of the oil was turned on. And the only negative, uh, if you want to call it that, from putting carbon dioxide in the air is that it increases photosynthesis. That's the only thing. There's absolutely zero possibility that a uh, carbon dioxide molecule can capture, store, redirect, or amplify radiant energy coming from the sun. Anything that happens in the atmosphere to sunlight is a reduction in the heat that reaches the surface of the Earth. Anything that happens in the atmosphere at night is a reduction in the heat loss. And delayed cooling is not warming. So nothing in the atmosphere warms the planet. That's another piece of false science. 
So. All right. We'll uh, maybe pursue that a little bit more later. I want to focus also on the existence of hydrocarbons in out in in outer space. So, for example, on the um, the moon t- Titan, uh, which is one of Jupiter's moons, they're they're, they're speculating, or maybe they know that that the the atmosphere on Titan is composed of methane. That's that's a hydrocarbon. Are they suggesting that there was once life on Titan? Uh, I mean, how do they explain the existence of a hydrocarbon on other planets, on other moons? Well, it's interesting. Earth has water, which exists uh, naturally in three phases. It exists as liquid in the oceans and lakes. It exists as as solid on the ice caps and on the tops of uh, high mountain peaks, and it exists as a vapor in the atmosphere. Well, on Titan, the same exact thing happens with methane, but the temperature on Titan never gets above minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit. You have frozen methane ice caps on the poles. You have liquid methane oceans that they estimate could be a 1,000 feet deep, and then you have methane clouds that form and blow across the surface of the planet. So it exists in all three phases. You can take spectrograph and tell absolutely for certain, because everything has its own little uh, set of spectral lines, you can tell that it's methane in all three of those locations. And there's methane, there's giant methane nebula clouds out there in, in the other galaxies. So, you know, to say that it can only come from dead dinosaurs is patently absurd. And they found it on meteorites, you know. So it's how do you have hydrocarbons on meteorites that could n- never possibly have supported a dinosaur and a bunch of ferns. So same process, decaying uranium on meteorites on on Titan, or something else to explain the existence of hydrocarbons off-planet? Yes, I would say that they're all in that that same uh, method of production. Because the planet, the the cosmos would have probably started off with um, more basic elements, and you would have a lot of the larger elements. There's pretty much evidence that Mars at one time had a volcanic activity and the vision produces not only the heat you're talking a million times the amount of energy that you get with a a chemical reaction, a combustion say of TNT so you're talking about a million times well people don't really understand what a million is it's like yeah it's a big number but to put that in in a visual sense if you have something that's 100 feet by 100 feet, then that would be a um, 10,000 square feet. So you got 100, right. which has two zeros, times 100 with two zeros, so you got four zeros. That's 10,000. If you also made it 100 feet tall, then you'd have six zeros. So that means if you've got a one-by-one-foot square out of a 100-by-100-foot 100 uh, structure, that is one in a million. So if we're talking parts per million or we're talking a million times more uh, energy, that's the ratio that you need to visually uh, conceptualize. And that amount of energy flows up through the biosphere. There's no other place for it to go. 
So as that energy is coming up, it's making all this molten rock. Now, another thing that we did. Oh, hang on, know, Joseph. I got to. Sorry, pardon the interruption. I've got to take a time out here. This was a short segment. We'll come back, talk some more about abiotic oil. We'll also talk about the Saturn V rocket and the lunar landing and or lunar lander and some uh, perplexing issues with those. Back with more of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. So, Joseph, we were talking about um, the existence of hydrocarbons like methane on uh, Titan, one of Jupiter's moons, um, you had one final point that you were uh, discussing before the break. So let's finish up with that. And then a few more questions remain on abiotic oil before we hit the top of the hour. And then after that, we'll talk Saturn V rocket, rockets and the lunar lander. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, what was I talking about again? Geez, I was digging up my stuff on Saturn because I didn't realize we were going to be talking about the Saturn rocket. Well, you're, we, you were talking about uh, uh, the the molecule. You were talking about imagine you know uh, something that's oh, yeah, 100, 100 by 100, 100 square by, feet by 100 by 100. So that's what we're right. talking about in the way of energy. All that flows through the biosphere, and then something that we didn't discover until we got our GPS system in um, and completed. I was working with the uh, Texas land surveyors were doing the state plane coordinate system, and they were trying to take the old GS, uh, USGS mapping and triangulate every point in the state so that you had coordinate system. And then when they started putting up the first satellites, they said, oh, boy, this is great. We're going to be able to do all this with just satellites instead of having to go out and measure off of USGS monuments. And the first test that they did with that they kept getting increasing accuracy on a horizontal grid, but they had a vertical anomaly. And they said, well, you know, as soon as we get an additional satellites and we can triangulate from 10 or 12 satellites simultaneously, we'll be able to eliminate all these errors. And that way we'll be able to do elevation benchmarks for, like, floodplain elevations and stuff like that as well. Well, it turned out that they had a, a, a persistent... 18-inch vertical elevation change every day. And they went, well, how in the world can this happen? Well, guess what? It coincided with the ocean tides. So the moon is pulling the crust of Earth that's floating on this liquid magma up 18 inches every day and dropping it 18 inches every night as the moon goes by. So that was an incredible piece of information that it was like, oh, my God, further proof that plate tectonics is correct because that ends up being the motive force. If you're lifting that plate up and down, then you're going to find places along the plate where you will have these you know, rings of fire, and that's where the molten rock comes out. And the molten rock, as it comes out, particularly in the ocean, it cools, and then it's basically ratcheting one set of plates underneath others. So you end up with sub subduction zones because every night the moon is lifting up the, <clears throat> which is not always night because if it's a new moon, it's going to happen during the day. But the moon is lifting up the crust of the earth as well as 
positioning the oceans alternately back and forth across the crust of the Earth. So you're loading it, and then you're creating these cracks. And as these fissure cracks peel open from the gravity, they're filled with magna from below, and then the magna solidifies because it hits the four-degree centigrade water at the bottom of the ocean. And that way you're constantly ratcheting in one direction uh, okay. due to the... I, I don't want to go... Well, gravity. I don't want to get too far off topic, but you mentioned something there that just stuck in my mind, and that is a possible then connection between tectonic activity and the cycles of the moon. Uh, so, f so for example, is could we predict earthquakes based on moon cycles? Well, guess what? There's another way of predicting earthquakes, and that is based on uh, da -dun -da -dun, radon. Uh, on the far end, the, the right-hand side of the periodic chart, you have a group of elements that at one time were called inert gases. And this is uh, neon, uh, helium, uh, argon, krypton, xenon, and radon. Well, radon is radioactive. It has a half-life of 2.8 days. If you have a pound of radon, it will be uh, a sixteenth of an ounce in 28 days. They have discovered spikes in radon gas at volcanoes and at earthquake sites. And that was pretty exciting uh, news when it was first posted in Popular Science and Popular Mechanics back in the 80s. But then all of a sudden they went, well, we don't actually want people to know that there's variable fission. And so one of the other factors involved in earthquakes and volcanic eruptions is that you have an irregular rate of fission from the uranium and thorium atoms that are inside the Earth. So they're subject to bombardment from variable cosmic rays, and so as the cosmic rays are sending that little cue ball down and knocking either a, a uh, odd uh, pool ball neutron off of the, the large atom, or they're knocking a proton off, they're creating these isotopes, they're creating those fission reactions, and we have no control over that. So probably there is a universal pulse of cosmic energy that's sending varying amounts of gamma rays, and then we, we're protected from those gamma rays from a magnetosphere, but the magnetosphere is also variable. So you have a, a variable layer of protection, you have a variable um, amount of incoming gamma rays, and the gamma rays are the same thing that they use in a nuclear reactor or a nuclear bomb. You just send in the gamma rays and bust apart the atoms, and then you hope there's enough atoms nearby to have a chain reaction. And if it's a power plant, you want to have a limited control chain reaction. And if it's a, a nuclear bomb, you want to have the most bang you can get in the shortest period of time. So those are the, the functions that we're dealing with. It's still a fission process. So earthquakes are driven by gravitational forces from all of the planets, which are causing the, the floating crust to move around a little bit, but they're also caused because of variable uh, volcanism, which is a result of variable fission. And that's variable concentrations of uranium. Um, I've written a whole bunch of articles on these. There, I've got 60 of them available at Canada Free Press and 30 of them at Climate Realist, and I've probably got uh, 
30 or 40 articles now at Principles Scientific that I've written and researched on these various subjects. So anybody that's interested in more of my research, but I'm not the only one researching at this. There's, there's ample evidence that this is what's really going on. So, And, and cosmic rays, um, to what extent, I mean, I, I don't believe, or maybe they are, included in the, uh, the so-called you know, models uh, that are trying to predict and understand climate change, to what extent are cosmic rays responsible for, for you know, the Earth's temperature rising or lowering, uh, ice ages, hurricanes? Well, there's not very many good means of proxy for that. So even though we've, we've got ice core isotope samples, well, that doesn't really tell us exactly what the fluctuations are in gamma rays. The group called Electric Universe, and I think they've also got another uh, group that they sponsor called Thunderbolt Project. They've got a whole group of uh, highly trained, you know, physicists and engineers, most of them with PhDs, that make regular presentations, and they discuss this stuff in depth. But some of the climate websites have prohibited even the use of those words. They put an auto-delete that if you use the words electric universe or some of these uh, claimed skeptic science sites, if you put in the word slayer or slaying the sky dragon or faux science, you put in any of these key words and they just do an auto-delete so that your comments never show up. So you're not even allowed to participate <laughs> in the discussion among skeptics, which is fascinating. You know, fascinating. Ridiculous. When I went to the Heartland ICC-9 conference out in uh, Las Vegas, I was in a room with 600 claimed skeptics. There weren't a dozen of us in the whole room that had ever taken thermodynamics, so you couldn't talk radiation physics to any of these people because they'd already been uh, drinking the green Kool-Aid that there's a little bit of carbon warming. But one of the guys I met there was a guy named Arthur Vituro, who was a... Um, geology professor at University of Maryland, and he had gotten 30 years of seismic data on uh, the Pacific Ocean and 30 years of NOAA weather data, and he put the two together, and he said, sure enough, there's a direct correlation between seismic activity and the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is the El Nino-La Nina. So the Pacific Ocean is half of the surface area of the Earth. You don't realize right. that, but, but when it's sunset in Peru, it's sunrise over in Thailand. You know, it's just like the thing is so big. So that is one of the major drivers of climate on the planet is what's happening in the Pacific Ocean. And if you're All right, warming, we've got to take a time out here, Joseph. We're at the top of the hour. Stay with us. We'll uh, continue our discussion with Joseph Olson, science writer, retired engineer, Principia Scientific International. We'll talk Saturn V rockets, lunar landings, 5G, and uh, your questions and comments. Back with more. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio.
live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Science writer, founding member of Principia Scientific International, Joseph A. Olson is here. We've been discussing abiotic oil, and uh, we're also going to get into some of the nagging questions, perplexing questions having to do with NASA's Saturn V rocket, uh, rockets and uh, the lunar landing, or uh, lunar lander used in the uh, Apollo program and the moon mission. They don't quite add up, as we'll uh, discover. Uh, Also, we'll discuss the potential dangers of 5G and uh, your phone calls this hour. If you're watching the live stream on YouTube, uh, Strange Planet, I'll also try and work in some of your uh, questions and comments. Ryan White, my live stream producer, will relay those to me. Uh, And at the bottom of the hour, we'll open up the phone lines in the greater Toronto area, 416-360-360. 740 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. Toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. 1-866-740-4740. Before we get back to Joseph Olson, uh, don't forget you can listen to me weekday afternoons, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every day, Monday to Friday, 4 to 6, The Richard Serrett Show on Saga 960. That's in the GTA. I can actually, uh, you can actually pick it up um, west of the GTA, all the way to Brantford. Uh, sometimes on the AM dial 960. If you're outside the listening area, you can stream it at Saga 960 AM. Saga S A U G A Saga 960 AM. Monday to Friday, four to six p.m. Eastern. Uh, next week is Orthodox Easter. So I'll be uh, dipping into the audio archives and presenting a uh, repeat broadcast next week. The following week, Derek Gilbert from Skywatch TV and the author of Giants, Gods, and Dragons will be here in Hour 1. And Joe Lorendo, the author of Cosmic Coincidences, will be along for the second hour. And then in three weeks, I believe Joseph Farrell has uh, confirmed for at least an hour. Maybe I can convince him to stick around for the full two hours. And just one final note before we get back to Joseph, another Joseph, Joseph Kelly. Uh, Joseph, I want to thank you for your tremendous support. He just signed on uh, at patreon.com slash strange planet. And he is uh, now uh, an official donor of strange planet in the star chamber tier. That's $50 a month. Joseph Kelly, thank you so much for your support. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, back to Joseph Olson, science writer, founding member of Principia Scientific International. Just tell us a little bit about this organization. Uh, how would you describe it? Is it a think tank? Um, you know, who's involved and what do you do? Well, John O'Sullivan uh, got together a group of writers for the for our book back in 2010, and it was released uh, Thanksgiving Day in 2010 in Europe. And then it was released in America in January of 2011. And we realized right away that we were having difficulty because they'd already set the two sides of the fixed debate, and that's the 
you know, carbon is the most terrible thing in the world, and it's a toxin, and it's destroying the planet. We, you know, it's going to be gone in no time. Those are the group I call the warmest. And then we have the group of people that are about equally funded by the government, so they can't get too far off the reservation, but they can say, oh, carbon dioxide warms the planet. It's a greenhouse warming gas, which you've already discussed. No gas is warming. So then they say that it warms a little bit. And we've, they've squandered over $100 billion on this. And like I said in one of my articles, if all you fund is findings for danger, danger is all you're going to find. So right. So this is controlled that, opposition, in other words. Yes, and that and that's how they've kept this debate going for at least the ten years that Principal Scientific has been in existence. So we decided that if we didn't have our own website where we could control, <laughs> not that we control, we don't really control the comment sections unless somebody's just abusive, but we control the content coming in. And, and if there's something that we want to be objective about and say, well, this is what the opposition's done, then we provide a rebuttal for that. We also were a, a place to publish articles by by people that were doing unique research that reinforced the the principles that we were espousing, which were that carbon dioxide is a benefit to the planet and that no gas is warming the planet and that fossil fuels are a benefit to humanity and that if we're not harvesting and using them, they're a detriment to the environment. And those are pretty basic concepts. So that's why we created Principles Scientific. We have published works by a uh, professor at uh, University of Monterey, Nassif Nassal, he did a complete redo of the 1909 experiment that was done by Professor Robert Woods at Stanford University, where he proved that infrared uh, light is not trapped inside a greenhouse. The only way a greenhouse warms is by reducing the convection loss. So if you're not having air moving out of the greenhouse, then that air can still transfer radiant energy back through the glass. So the greenhouse doesn't have any effect at all. So he reproduced that experiment. Then he also went out and did a 28-day experiment where he measured the actual back radiation photons and found out that the only photons that were coming back to the Earth were not because they were emitted from the Earth, captured by a CO2 molecule and bounced back to the Earth, which is what they claim, but that these were uh, photons that were coming in along uh, magnetic flux lines from the sun all the way around the Earth, which had been predicted by NASA, and he measured them in the exact same amount that NASA had predicted, although they never bothered to measure them. So this is the only measure, the only experiment ever done to actually measure uh, back radiation. And he proved why are big oil false. companies on side now with the warmists, or as I, I refer to them as the the climate change alarmists? Uh, why can't they? Why wouldn't they uh, continue just to milk that 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 cow of scarce oil uh, well, into the foreseeable future forever? Why are they now? Agreeing with the warmest. Funny you should mention that. I was on a camp out with a bunch of my, you know, male bonding friends about a decade ago, and he was a, a executive with Shell. And I asked him, you know, why are you trying to do this? He goes, we think of it as another revenue stream. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, who's going to pay to do all of that carbon capture and and redeposit? 
we're going to get paid for it, so we don't care if, if we're gouging all the customers. I went, well, that's a pretty cynical way of doing things. But, you know, they look at everything as just uh, what's in their best interest. Uh, I wrote a great article that I uh, submitted to a petroleum um, magazine, and they had I'd had discussions with the editor of that magazine, and she said that, well, I've read your articles at Canada Free Press and Principles Scientific, and you sound very knowledgeable, and we'd love to have you as a guest on our radio program. We'd love to have you publish in our magazine, but we can't do anything that's not an original publication. So I wrote an article called Muscle Power of Carbon Empowerment, and that's at uh, Principles Scientific. And I, I, I covered the information that we talked about, Thomas Gold, and a lot of the history about the my the actual facts of um, global warming and of peak oil. But then I also mentioned that LNG was not really a, a very good idea. This is liquefied natural gas. You take natural gas, you chill it down to minus 260 degrees Fahrenheit, which in order to do that, it takes more energy than the fuel itself actually has. So you're actually doubling your fuel cost. And then you put it in a chirogenic tank. Well, there's a thing called chirogenic embrittlement. These tanks are not standardized by the DOT. So what they did is they said, well, each tank has to have a manway big enough that you can climb inside and do a visual inspection for cracks so that these things don't explode while they're out in the ocean. And they're covered with insulation, but as anybody knows, you can put a thermos bottle, you can put whatever temperature material you want in it over a period of time, it's going to still be able to radiate enough energy that it's going to reach the ambient temperature. So it doesn't matter how good a thermos bottle you make, if you pour boiling water in it or you put in uh, dry ice, it's going to eventually get to room temperature, and that's going to actually happen pretty quick. So those big vessels that they're uh, shipping LNG around are also refrigerated. And they're only a one-way cargo because they can't carry anything else with the, that. Uh, so bottom line is, I didn't think that was a very good use of uh, natural gas resources. But I had also read on the 90-year-old Fisher-Tropis process that we had talked about. And then in 2015, there was a professor at Texas A&M, Kenneth R. Hall, who did a scalable um gas-to-liquid conversion unit where they could take natural gas and make ultra-pure gasoline, which had zero uh, level of emissions because it burned so clean, and it met the requirements for aviation fuel. He wrote an uh, article, and it was uh, Professor Professor's Natural Gas Refining Process Results in Industry Breakthrough. It's at the Texas A&M Education site. But if you put that exact title uh, in Google search, you won't find that article. If you don't put his name in TAMU, so if you don't know exactly where to hunt in 2015, you won't find that article. But if you at, at this, his process in 2015 was scalable and could produce gasoline at $4 per gallon, which is what it was during the Obama era. Well, now 
it wouldn't be practical because uh, during Trump, when they started adding additional capacity in America, the price got down to $2 a gallon. But aviation fuel still remains high. The average price for aviation fuel in the United States right now is $4.50 a gallon. And in spot markets, it would be as much as $12 a gallon. And a lot of those spot markets have little stripper wells where they're producing a low level of petroleum, but they're also getting natural gas, and the natural gas is not in quantities big enough to connect to a pipeline, so they just flare it off. Well, rather than flare that gas, you could run it through one of these suitcase-sized boxes and produce gasoline that you could store, and you could uh, sell the gasoline directly to the airport that's a mile down the road. So bottom line is, I was trying to promote something that was very, and that's why I thought the energy industry was like, well, gee, he's going against the LNG market. Let's not publish his article. But turns out there was a, quote, fellow skeptic scientist that slandered me, and I actually bragged about it in an email, and that's why I didn't get to, to be a guest on this radio program or have an article published. So, you know, it's kind of crazy that, that even after the climate gate stuff, we thought that this type of um, intellectual sabotage had ended, but it absolutely has not. So wind and uh, wind turbines and solar uh, farms, solar farms, uh, it seems to me that they're going to require a great deal of oil uh, hydrocarbons in order to produce them. Uh, and once you start manufacturing, you mentioned Honda, I think, is is uh, going all electric by 2040. A number of uh, automotive manufacturers uh, have announced, you know, that they're going EV very soon. And all of a sudden, you're going to have 150 million cars or whatever the number is in North America, all charging at night. Uh, where are they going to get that electricity from? Yes, isn't that an interesting problem? Uh, I've done analysis on um, particularly photo cells, photoelectric cells, and they are net energy losers. And the same thing with windmills. The, you know, the windmills, you have to melt steel at 2,700 degrees to make the steel pylons that are supported on. You have to use uh, high-temperature uh, petroleum products to produce the fiberglass blades that they use. You have to burn uh, lime under uh, 3,500 degree temperature to get the the cement, the Portland cement that you use to mix with uh, sand and gravel. And there again, you're talking a horsepower is lifting one cubic foot of dirt four feet in the air. A horsepower is 770 watts, and if you're getting 1.5 watts per square foot, that means you have to have a 50 by, I mean, a 25 by 20 solar cell to produce one horsepower. Think of the tons of earth that have to be moved in order to get the raw materials to manufacture those things, the amount of energy it takes to produce them, um, and then the amount of energy it takes to ship them, and then the amount of energy that nobody's figured into the equation to recycle this garbage. They're cutting up windmills all over the place and taking them to giant landfills because they can't practically remove the fiberglass any other way. So they are all net energy losers, and they're just eco trinkets. It's a bunch of what I call um, Pied Piper professors using chicken little science to 
force Jack and the Beanstalk solutions. It's it's just ridiculous fables. And, and where are they going to get all the rare earths needed uh, for you know these batteries? Uh, I, I can't imagine that that these regimes that own most of these rare earths, namely communist China, uh, are going to be adhering to the strictest uh, environmental or labor laws. Uh, I can't imagine that the the production of these batteries for all of these uh, electric vehicles are going to be the most ethical uh, or environmentally friendly. Well, the the only real supply of cobalt that's needed to stabilize lithium batteries comes out of the Congo, and that's done with uh, child labor because it takes little kids to climb through the little seams to dig out the cobalt rock that they use to stabilize that. So that's definitely blood money. Um, the other factor is, you know, we had mentioned earlier that the cost of certain elements have a intrinsic value, and I'd said something about the most expensive metal. That is rhodium, and it's $920 a gram. Well, a gram's 28 ounces, so that's $26,700 per ounce. Compare that to gold at $1,700 per ounce. Absolutely ridiculous. So, and the United States has larger deposits of rare earth elements than Canada does, I mean, than China does, but they're all on government lands, and the government refuses to allow extraction because there's dangerous levels of thorium, and they don't want us to refine the thorium because they don't want us to use thorium as a power plant source because you don't get plutonium and you don't get weapons-grade uranium out of thorium. It's completely safe. You know, the whole thing is just such a complete jumble of absurd priorities that are not based on the best needs of human beings. They're based on the best needs of the a power structure that is cannibalistic. And I'm sorry, there's no other way to describe the behavior that they treat the rest of the planet. How are these solar panels going to do anything if Bill Gates is intent on dimming the sun? Yes, that's an interesting question because it's dimming the same rays that liberate the uh, free ad, uh, electrons that are that are baked into the solar cells. The way the typical solar cell works is that you have a crystalline cubic grid of silicon, which is about 95% pure, and then you embed it with phosphorus and boron. The boron has five outer shell electrons, one of them which it can't hang on to very well. And so when it's exposed to sunlight, that one um, electron vibrates enough that it can move through the phosphorus part of the cell and leave the cell at one and a half volts direct current and one and a half watts per square foot. But it doesn't go out and work all day long and come back and get in the cell to do work tomorrow. It's being eroded. It's nothing but molecular erosion. It's a parlor trick. And, and there's a limited amount of boron on the planet. And once you start running out of boron, and a great movie to explain all of this to you is one that was um, produced by uh, Michael Moore and got him banned on YouTube. It's called Planet of the Humans. And they're taking a quartz mountain in South Carolina, blasting it out because it's the purest source of silicon that they've located it, shipping it to China, breaking it down into the elements and then uh, uh, to, to just fine powder, and then they bake it in an oven 
1,000 degrees, which is 1,700, uh, centigrade, 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit, under a vacuum. Well, where does the energy come from to heat that oven and to pull it down to a vacuum? That's a lot of energy. If you're getting one and a half watts per square foot, how many solar cells does it take to blast that mountain, haul it uh, to the port, ship it halfway around the world, bake it in an oven, and then put it on a ship and ship it back? My God, it's absolutely insane. A hundred solar cells in their whole service life could never produce the energy it takes to manufacture one solar cell. It's right, and the, the batteries to store, to store all of this energy, uh, I read recently that uh, um, Elon Musk has the, the largest battery factory in the world. It would take his factory 500 years to produce enough batteries which would provide the Earth's needed energy for one day. Right. Do those numbers because make sense? You you can't store alternating current. Alternating current is just a pulse where you're sending the the electrons don't actually move down the wire. What moves down the wire is just a change in and positive and negative between the alternating current. So you're you're forcing a wave through the wire. And the wave is what's actually doing the work. Well, Tesla proved in the 1880s in his war with Edison that alternating current was the only way to uh, transmit power over long distances and was the most efficient because you could transmit one voltage and then use transformers to break it down to a whole bunch of other uh, more useful voltages. And that's the way the whole system of the world works. Nobody uses direct current for anything more than a starter motor at your house or your flashlight. Okay, Joseph, so, i got to take a quick time out here. We'll uh, pardon the interruption. We'll come back, discuss some more. I promise we will get to the, uh, the Saturn V rockets and the lunar lander and uh, 5G. Joseph Olson, Principia Scientific International. Back with more in a moment. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back. We'll also take questions and comments from the YouTube live chat. Ryan will relay those to me, Ryan White, our live stream producer. So uh, let's uh, let's move on and, and talk about uh, the Saturn V rocket of course, which delivered the lunar lander to the uh, the moon back in 69 uh, and uh, for all uh, Apollo missions. What did you discover or what can you tell us about some problems? It has to do with fuel storage. That much I understand. But just walk us through the, the, the perplexing issue with the Saturn V rocket and the lunar lander. Well, I didn't want to wear every tinfoil hat in the house, but... I had attended a conference, um, JFK conference, in uh, November of 2017, and I met James Fetzer, who had interviewed me uh, a number of times. He's probably interviewed me almost two dozen times at this point. But I met him, and he sold me a copy of a book 
um, nuclear bombs destroyed the the World Trade Centers, and then also we didn't walk on the moon. Well, I'd already read an enormous amount of material on the um, nuclear bombs in the World Trade Center, and so I kind of backburnered that one, but I read through his book on We Didn't Walk on the Moon, and it was mostly based on photographic evidence, and the hypothesis is that Stanley Kubrick filmed it in London at the same time he was doing the stage sets for his uh, 2001 Space Odyssey movie. And so it was all uh, very crude CGI for that period of time, which is back in 1969. And I didn't want to believe that NASA would lie to us, and I did want to believe in American, you know, technical superiority and so I was like very hesitant to want to get involved in it but the photographic evidence was pretty compelling I said well I'm not going to make any public statements that doesn't have science that's independent of anything that I've already read so lo and behold and I'm not sure exactly what the date was when this was published but space.com did an article and uh, it's space.com slash 18 422 Apollo Saturn versus Moon Rocket NASA graphics. They took the actual NASA graphics and they showed the uh, projections for what happened during the launch. And I looked at it and I went, oh my God, NASA's providing the evidence that absolutely proves there was no way that this could have possibly happened. So we're starting off with the stage one. Now, the Stage 1 portion of the Saturn V rocket held 521,000 gallons of fuel. That lifted the rocket from Cape Canaveral up to 42 miles above the atmosphere and a speed of 5,300 miles per hour. Well, 42 miles up is how high the top of the atmosphere is. So at that point, you have no atmospheric restriction on the on your acceleration. So then the second stage of the rocket held 340,000 gallons of fuel, and that boosted the rocket up to 118 miles altitude and a speed of 17,400 miles. My word, that's a lot of fuel. Yes. Well, then... The only remaining stage is stage three, and that's only 86,000 gallons. But you haven't reached escape velocity. Escape velocity for Earth is 2,500 miles per hour. So where's that extra speed going to come from? And then once you get, because the moon has one-sixth the gravity of the Earth, and it's 240,000 miles away, that means you've got 200,000 miles that you have to travel away from Earth to get out of Earth's gravity. But then, even if you entered the moon's gravity 40,000 miles away from the moon, you would have at zero velocity entering moon's gravity. You would have a velocity of um, 100,000 miles per hour at, at 6 meters per second acceleration when you smacked into the moon. So you may have to have energy rocket fuel to slow you down in order to... Right, like a reverse thruster. Reverse thruster. And then you have to have the energy to get from the command module down to the moon and then to get off of the moon. And if you look at the newest thing that NASA just produced, the Armist 
um, lander that they're showing that Musk is going to produce, it's going to have a circling space station on the moon so they can send fuel loads up. And the thing that's landing on the moon looks like the same size as the Saturn rocket. So they, they're even now admitting that something as Mickey Mouse as the lunar lander would be required to be as large as the Saturn rocket just to be able to land on the moon. It's absolutely in other words, absurd. In other words, just, just escaping uh, the Earth's atmospheric drag or the, the, you know, and the gravitational pull, you're going to need 512,000 gallons of fuel to get you to 42 miles altitude. Then you're going right. to need another 24,000, uh, sorry, yeah. another... Um, um, 340,000 th- 340, gallons of fuel to get to 115 miles. And then um, you've got to have, uh, then, okay, so then you've got to have something left to to slow Maybe down the lunar the moon lander. Gravity and then, yeah, and then slow down the moon, and then land on the moon, then get back off the moon, and then get a, escape from the moon's gravity to get back to Earth. And then you're going to be coming back to Earth at such a high speed, you have to have retro rockets to slow you down coming back to Earth. So where is all the fuel storage, in other words? Well, yeah, you're short a whole bunch. Uh, it's amazing that given 50 years of improved um, rocket telemetry and uh, computing and, and ballistic information, we're, we're a hell of a lot smarter than we were 50 years ago. And the fact is, when they had the Apollo 13 uh, accident, they sent three engineers into three different rooms with slide rules and said, do the calculations for the thrust burn because it would take our computers an hour to do that. And five minutes later, all three engineers came out, and they compared their answers. They were correct. They said, okay, this is the the timing of the thrust, and this is the amount of thrust, and that's what brought the Apollo 13 capsule back. So we didn't have, we didn't have the level of a, of a cell phone capability in all of NASA as far as computing power in 1969. Well, the Chinese are now hoping to land their Chang-7 uh, orbiter on the moon and bring back two kilos of rocks. Well, it's, you know, a kilo is 2.2 pounds. They're going to bring back 4.5 pounds of rock. The astronauts would have produced more 4.5 pounds of solid waste in their diapers while they were on the moon. And that brings up the next little issue with the moon. Uh, in our book, um, Slaying the Sky Dragon, we showed the cycle of temperature on the moon. The surface of the moon... Um, is always facing the sun, I mean, always the same side facing the earth, excuse me. So the same side right. is always facing the earth. So that means in their 28-day rotation around the earth, you have 14 days of night on the moon, and then you have 14 earth days of sunshine. Well, the equatorial temperature on the moon is 260 degrees Fahrenheit by day, it's minus 315 degrees by night, and that temperature swing happens in about a six- or eight-hour Earth period. So that means that, that you've got boiling hot temperatures that you couldn't survive with any kind of spacesuit and freezing cold temperatures you couldn't survive in any spacesuit except for a one-hour, two-hour period where it would probably be between 100 degrees Fahrenheit and 30 degrees Fahrenheit where you could get out and drive your golf cart on the moon and then hurry up and get away from there. 
because that's the reality of the moon. And that doesn't even mention the fact that you have no protection against the gamma rays that are coming from the sun and from the rest of the solar system. Those are pretty extreme conditions to operate a mechanical Hasenblatt camera as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's no way. Why why didn't they have any degradation from cosmic rays? You send a um, regular Kodachrome film through the metal detector at the airport and ends up with speckles and and snowflakes all over it. So, yeah, none of that happened either. Yeah, the whole thing right. is absolutely absurd. And you have no you have lubricants inside no uh, a Hasenblatt camera, you, they, and there would be some off-gassing and so forth. I mean, how would the shutter operate? How would uh, it it does? How how are you going to operate those cameras? The uh, the focus ring, or I suppose it was automatic focus. But how do you look into the the, the viewfinder um, uh, with those huge helmets on uh, without you know? cutting off heads uh, in, in the photo. All the photographs are, are pretty well framed quite nicely. No cut off heads. Uh, I mean, how did they do that with those huge gardening gloves, you know, operate the shutter and all that? It does It does raise some interesting issues aside from, as you say, the, uh, the, the fuel storage issue and the Saturn V rockets. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. We'll come back. We'll get to some uh, questions, phone calls. We'll talk 5G, time permitting. Joseph A. Olson with Principia Scientific International stays with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back. Uh, Joseph, one of our um, YouTube live chat uh Folks, Bigfoot Phil writes, don't they use trajectory and the moon's gravity and all that rocket science stuff so they don't have to use as much fuel without gravity? Well, if you enter into a system with an excess amount of velocity, then you're going to have a a problem with either uh, unintended departure or unintended impact. The reason you can have like a geosynchronous orbit uh, satellite is that you're falling at the same rate of gravity, and that's why you don't have gravitational forces inside uh, orbiting bodies. Is because they're falling at they're, they have a forward velocity that exactly matches what it would be as if they were falling through the Earth. So you, the reason they they do the 747 vomit comet is that they fly a parabola they fly up and then as the plane falls it's the same thing as going over the top of a roller coaster you're zero gravity but that doesn't mean you're going to always be zero gravity and if you have too much velocity or too little velocity you're either going to impact the planet that's got the gravity or you're going to arc off into space so it's a very narrow balance you have to have as far as the speed and your orbit elevation so uh, absolutely, there was no fuel load available to 
slow the rocket down to keep it from impacting, and certainly no fuel to depart from the capsule, land on the moon, and come back to the capsule. And then no fuel to depart moon's gravity, and no fuel to keep the acceleration from 200,000 miles of 32 uh, feet per meter squared acceleration that you get from Earth's gravity. They'd smack into the Earth the same th- same way an asteroid would. And just going in circles around the Earth is not going to solve that problem. You try to circle the Earth, and you're going to go arcing off into orbit around another planet. And that's what they use. They use the gravity force like that as a sling to swing satellites into orbit with reduced fuel load. But there's no way that, that you can do that. It's It's a pretty much fixed ratio of the forward velocity that you have to have. And I don't remember exactly, but it seems like to do a geosynchronous orbit, you're at 17,000 miles, and you need to have uh, 17,000 miles per hour, roughly something in that area of the same forward velocity to have that same drop. So, uh, Okay, John Porter in the YouTube live chat asks, if the moon landing was a, a hoax, why didn't the Russians call our bluff? Well, there was a lot of things going on. The Russians were having um, a riots in Czechoslovakia that they were crushing with tanks, so they didn't want to, you know, make a big stink about it. And then they said that their um, Luna projects managed to land on the moon and bring rocks back three different times. And so we let them tell their little lie, and they let us tell our big lie. The other factors that were going on in the United States is that in 1968, we assassinated MLK and JFK, and we had major riots. We had major protests against the Vietnam War. We had the same folks that were involved in the JFK assassination that wanted to put a glossy frosting layer on the decade of the Kennedys, and so they said, we'll complete his mission and fake a um, lunar landing, and that way we can say that we honored his his pledge to put a man on the moon in this decade. And they honored it by faking it in a film studio somewhere. If they didn't do it in Stanley Kubrick's, they probably did it in Lookout Mountain, the CIA film processing um, studio out in uh, Laurel Canyon. So, All right. Uh, St. Michael. St. Michael in the YouTube live chat asks, uh, what about the Apollo 12 ascent stage experiment crashing into the lunar surface and it rang like a bell for a long period of time? Well, uh, first of all, I doubt that it rang like a bell because there's there's no sound on the moon. The vibrations would have uh, tamped out in a really short period of time. So, I, you know, I kind of distrust NASA, but if you want to have some real information to be upset with NASA about, you should uh, review their Future Wars, and I sent you a copy of this, yes. Future Wars 2025. This was an eight-hour conference where they had 110 slides that they produced, and this is about trauma-based mind control, and the only way that they'd be able to perfect continuation of government was that they were going to have to trauma-base people. And this was right after uh, the Rockefeller and John Hopkins conference, uh, Operation Dark Winter, which was in June of 2001. The NASA Future Wars was in 
July of 2001, and then we all know what happened in September of 2001. So mass trauma. I'll say mass yeah, trauma. Yeah. So yeah. It, I mean, we're going to have to have you back on to discuss. You sent me some wonderful uh, articles, and there's so much here. But um, we'll we'll get you back yeah, on. Go to, maybe go to go to NASA's Future War 2025 at Druid's Theater WordPress dot com. They've got, he's got a great analysis with a whole bunch of those slides. He skips a lot of them because 100 slides is like ridiculous, but it's a very good presentation. And it was also filmed by um, Melissa and Aaron Dykes who do Truthstream Media. They were uh, fired by Alex Jones at InfoWars, and they uh, ended up getting married and having kids, and, and they're film producers, and they live in the central Texas area. Great work. And they also did another one on uh, U.S. top military secret film studio, and that is the Laurel Canyon thing, and how the CIA's been manipulating Hollywood since World War II started. Hollywood was a major propaganda outlet for the government, and it, it just never stopped. And, you know, we did a, an hour or two-hour interview the day after Thanksgiving uh, 2020 on Body Electric, and uh, that I based a lot of my research on a book written by Robert O. Becker, M.D., and I'd only read the first 300 pages of the book because I had ample evidence to discuss during our two-hour program, but I was sitting around, you know, wanting to find something to put me to sleep, and there wasn't anything good on the radio, so I thought, well, I'll just finish reading that book. Lo and behold, the reason why they quit funding research that was able to regenerate spinal column injuries and regrow limbs in mammals, the reason they stopped that research in 1968 was that Dr. Becker, because he realized that it was, we're talking milliamp and millivolt DC currents that operate your body, and, and the impact that they have from being in an uh, electrical, magnetically charged radiation environment. And so in the process of doing his research on how to do improvements in biology, which is absolutely fascinating book, I recommend it highly, The uh, Body Electric. Okay, I've got to, sorry, I've got to, we're, we're up against a break here, Joseph, so let me uh, take care of that. We'll come back and discuss uh, further. Joseph Olson stays with us for a few moments yet. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. All right, Joseph, before I go back to the uh, live chat uh, questions, uh, you were talking about uh, Becker's research on the body electric and how it was uh, the funding was taken away. Did you want to finish up at that point before we move on? Yes. He'd gotten very active in... Um restrictions on power transmission lines because he started finding giant clusters of cancers based on the distance that people were from these high-tension transmission lines, which when you're sending electric current, you're also producing uh, radiomagnetic waves. So, And you, you can tell that when you drive under transmission wires, if your AM radio's on, it's picking up static. 
Well, that's because the radio waves that were traveling through the air are distorted by uh, the electric field. And also, he was uh, very much opposed to the increased uh, use of personal uh, transmission devices, which at that time was limited uh, number of telephones, but there was a lot of um, uh, radio, uh, citizen band radio. It was being used by by truckers and people like that, and, and he was he was doing testing on the amount of radiation that you were actually getting and the tissue damage that was involved in that. And so they ended up cutting all of his funding through the NIH, but because he was highly published and he'd been at a bunch of conferences, he'd networked with a bunch of people across the country, and he kept asking and finding out why in the world did the NIH cut the the uh, research that he was doing on repairing uh, broken spinal columns and, and restoring nerves to people that were invalids, and then also being able to grow lost limbs that they were having high success with. And they said, well, all of the funding for the NIH is diverted through the DOD. And the DOD also controls all the funding for the National Science Foundation. So we've had a weaponized science program in the United States probably since 1900, but certainly since World War II, it's been highly weaponized. So they, they've got their own agenda, and their agenda is not what's best for everybody on the planet, unfortunately. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, back to the YouTube live chat. You, you betcha ask, is there really such a thing, going back to hour one, is there really such a thing as truly green energy sources? Doesn't anything come, does anything come close? It seems to me anything we use has some kind of ill effect on the environment. Is there anything as uh, – anything as uh, – Green energy, basically, truly green energy. Uh, I would say that hydrocarbons are the best green energy in the world. They give you uh, CO2, which is a, a plant food, and there's a direct linear correlation in photosynthesis and concentration of CO2. If it's 400 parts per million and you double it to 800, you double the photosynthesis rate, which is more sugars, more starches, and more carbohydrates. If you quadruple it up to 1,600 parts per million, it's a direct linear relationship. So the only negative impact to using hydrocarbons is that you're going to get more plant life. Gee, who wants to have you know more forests and more fields in the world instead of uh, barren land? So that's the only, quote, negative aspect. And the other thing is, if you're not using it, it becomes an environmental hazard. So who wants to have methane floating up and causing forest fires all over the place? Or who wants to have tar balls on their beaches because we quit drilling for oil? Now, one of the silly things that they've come up with is hydrogen fuel. Well, hydrogen is the uh, simplest, but it's also the least energy density of any fuel source known to man. So that means that the hydrogen atom by itself can do hardly any work. They've um, been working on doing uh, fuel cell electric volt conversion, electric vehicle conversion systems. Since I was in college, the um, master's degree program instructor that I had from in my chemistry lab classes got a contract to do um, direct uh, fuel cells in 1970, and he said, oh, it's 90% efficient. They're going to be, you know, the whole world's going to change, and then nothing's changed. Now Honda 
was the first to develop a fuel cell car, but Toyota is selling their Mira fuel car in California. It costs $50,000, and they say that it gets 60 miles per gallon, but that's an e-gallon. Okay, so what they're doing is they're taking hydrogen that they get from one of two sources. Either they use electrolysis of water and split the water molecule, run an electric current through it, in which case you're spending more electricity to change water to hydrogen and oxygen than you get out of the hydrogen. Or they're taking <laughs> it directly from, from uh, methane and they're separating it out, in which case you're taking more energy to take it out of methane. So you've already got a fuel source that has to be subsidized. Then you have a vehicle that has 37.5 gallons of fuel storage. It costs you $100 to fill it up, but those tanks operate under extremely high pressure. The H35 gas that they sell is 5,000 PSI. The H70 gallons... Uh, 70 gas is 10,000 psi. Well, a standard scuba tank, steel tank, is 2,500 cubic feet, and it weighs 45 pounds, and that is uh, only um, at um, 2,200 psi. So right, you're gonna have to. These cars are gonna have to be very he- very heavy in order to uh, to. No uh, trunk. It's all filled with these giant pressure vessels in the trunk of the car. And then, if you lay a scuba tank out in the sun and it's fully charged, it will explode just from the heat of the expansion from the sunlight. Lovely. Lovely. Yeah, and and then they become giant torpedoes. They just shoot off like like a rocket because it's exactly what it is. And you imagine these things in a wreck, and and just because you're not carrying a fuel source on board doesn't mean you're not going to have a wreck with a Tesla that has a lithium battery that's going to burn at 3,000 degrees for for four hours and take 30,000 gallons of water to put out? Or what if you get hit by a tanker, you know, a diesel tanker, and it catches on fire? And next thing you know, you have these three exploding bombs, three fuel tanks inside that Toyota Mira waiting to explode and go in some direction, and you don't know which direction they're going. And, And then the hydrogen, when it comes out, look at the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg... We've, we used uh, helium in our blimps, but we considered it a strategic material, and we didn't sell it to the Germans because we didn't want them to use it. So they used hydrogen gas in the Hindenburg. Look how quick the Hindenburg blew up. So right, indeed. Least amount. Let me, oh, it, it's absurd. Let me uh, squeeze in one more question here. Huawei, or YY, uh, asks, how do the astronauts pass through the Van Allen belts two times without being burned to a crisp. Yes, that's a very interesting dilemma. And NASA's admitted that they have no way of getting uh, living organisms through the Van Allen belt at today's technology. You well, aren't they thinner at the poles? Couldn't they have done a... Um, yeah, that's, you would have to enter and exit through the poles where, where the actual flux lines come down through the poles, and so you'd have to go escape through that particular little narrow window, and then same thing on reentering. So, yes, the Van Allen belts is just one additional layer of proof. And I wrote the article, you know, perplexing uh, Apollo questions for NASA and sent it to them in 2018, and here we are three years later. They haven't answered a single question. <laughs> so, what are you working on now at Principia Scientific International? Uh, I've been doing a lot of work on the uh, Cootie 
Chinese cootie jab. I'm well. really opposed <laughs> to the to the uh, vaccination program, and I've been opposed to everything that they've done as far as uh, lockdowns and contact tracing and social distancing. And so I've written 10 articles that are at Principal Scientific on that subject. One of them goes back to my grandmother lost her mother, father, and uh, 10-year-old brother in 1918 to the Spanish flu when she was 12 years old. So I had read a book by John M. Berry called The Great Influenza, and it listed a whole bunch of additional cofactors. And I read his book twice, cover to cover, because it had family interest to me. And number one, number two, I had preconceived notions about where the book was going when I started reading it. And when I got finished with it, I went, you didn't understand this book because you didn't realize where it was going. Read it again. So that's one of the few books I've read cover to cover twice uh, in, in, in a row. I've read Rise and Fall of the Third Reich four times cover to cover, 1,500 pages by William Shire, only because over a decade you forget how the Nazis did it. The ending is always the same. I read it with the same joy I'd have of feeding myself to a wood chipper a limited time, <laughs> but I needed to know how they did that. And we're All seeing right. the same Nazi program now. All right, we'll uh, we'll get you back on. Uh, soon. Uh, there's just too much information for two hours, Joseph. Always full value. Appreciate it. And uh, be well, my friend. We'll talk again soon. I'll be in touch. We'll schedule. God, God bless you, sir. All right. Joseph Olson, Principia Scientific International.com. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos. Back, uh, well, next week is a repeat. Orthodox Easter. Don't forget. Uh, we'll pull something nice out of the audio archives for you. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move, move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.